if you're just joining us, we're in a series called Creation Fall. We're, we're looking at the first four chapters of Genesis. I think I have those up there. Uh, and we're, we're, just, we're just saying that the Bible is not one uh, collection of, of like Aesop's fables for Christians, a bunch of moral tales, but it's one story telling one meta-narrative that, that God created the universe and that in that universe He created you and me and other hu- image bearers, and those image bearers turned their back on God and fall came, in, came into the world. But before that was even planned. He planned to redeem it through his son Jesus and ultimately restore it. So creation, fall, redemption, restoration. We're looking at the first two in this series. And so uh, that's where we're at. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, it's in Genesis chapter 2. So turn on your smartphone, turn to your Bible, Genesis chapter 2. That's where we'll be today. Um, And we are in week five. And so let me just give you a quick recap again if you're just joining us here. Uh, in week one, we started with Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we said that, that verse, if that's true, everything else, every other truth claim has to line up behind that. And, and we see that God is sovereign and He is the one in control. And because He's in control, uh, we, we find our story in His story ultimately. And then we looked at week two, the rest of Genesis chapter one, we saw that God is an amazingly good and creative artist, and the, the canvas of his art is the universe, and he puts on display his grace and glory for everyone. And because he's an artist, we should enjoy it. So, so creation was, was made for, for our joy and to enter into it, but we, we know also it's to point us to Jesus. It's not the ultimate point, so we can live without it, because ultimately we have God. And then week three, we said that at the, at the crown jewel of his creation, in this little subdivision of the universe, and a little dumpy little place called the solar system, and the third rock from that solar system, on this little blue dot, he formed out of the ground men and women created in his image as the ultimate crown of his creation, image bearers. And we looked at what does it mean to be an image bearer and how, how profound that is to mean that, that you and I represent and reflect the glory of God in the universe. And because we're image bearers, that should affect the way we talk to each other and treat each other and think about issues of, uh, of social justice and, and uh, all sorts of ways that image bearers are being repressed and, and image bearers that don't know Jesus as their Savior. That should, should drive us to take the gospel to them. Then last week, my friend Dave came, and Dave's a lawyer and a graduate from seminary with me, and he showed us that part of the Imago Dei means that we are, uh, we are given a calling, that we have, we have uh, work to do, and that's good, a good gift from God. It's not part of the fall. Our, our work that we have hands and feet and mouths to, to exercise is, is part of God's goodness to us and reflects His, His image into the world. And today, we're going to look at uh, one more aspect of that, that that God in His goodness, and this is what we have to understand at the very beginning, in His goodness and out of the flow of His love and grace and mercy, He created us, male and female, He created us. That gender and marriage is God's good idea. It's not some repressive idea from history that we just kind of brought along with us. In fact, when Genesis is written, it attacks the cultural norms of this, the ancient Near East with polygamy and all these things. It says, no, that always ends badly for people, mostly for women. And so it gives us a standard for what marriage is supposed to look like. And God is going to, to kind of hopefully raise the bar for us in this. 
Now, I said, not only do I want us to understand the whole Bible, I, I'm personally invested in this as well, as I have four daughters, four image bearers uh, that will grow up to be, Lord willing, women of God, and I, I want them to know, I want them to know what, what they're called to and, and to be ferocious women of God. I want them not to be little namby-pamby, like sweet little girls. I want them to take uh, the kingdom by storm. I want them to represent and reflect God's glory in the way that he created them uh, just majest, majestically. But that, the other thing of that is I've got four daughters who maybe one day will be married. And so I'm very, very much invested in, in raising the bar on, on, on men and raising the bar and saying, don't marry a boy that can shave. Marry a man of God who, who understands what it means to walk in his manhood. And honestly, our culture doesn't do very well with that, right? Anyone watch TV? Any, anyone watch sitcoms? Is it not true that every single sitcom, the, the man that is featured in that sitcom is basically a high-functioning or maybe a low-functioning idiot, right? The longest-running show in TV, uh, The Simpsons, Homer, Homer Simpsons, it's safe to say he's not a genius, right? And that is, that, that, that is kind of a, a funny thing, and we like that as a culture, but, but as a culture, we're, we've also kind of followed that and, and so lowered the bar that we've, we've made manhood and womanhood into a caricature that God never intended. And so we've, we've, we've said, uh, be a man, like, okay, take your shirt off like Putin and go hel- hunt, hunt elk with a knife, like, that, that's manly. But no, that's not, that's not what, what Scripture is. Uh, we're we're going to see, we're going to raise the bar on that, and, and we want to see that uh, God has good designs and good purposes. Every now and again in our culture, regardless of the chaos and, and the muck and the mire of our understanding of who we are as men and women and, and married people or single people, every now and again, there's some clarity that happens. And, and the whole culture knows it. So back in 2012, when the Aurora Theater shootings happened, when a, a deranged man went into the theater after the the showing, midnight showing of the dark night, and lit off some smoke canisters and began to unload his, his rifles into the crowd. Uh, what we found after the tragedy is that there were three boyfriends, not, not husbands, uh, not, not sons, boyfriends who had shielded the, the, the bodies of their girlfriends and had taken bullets and had died as a result. And two of the girls were injured themselves as the bullets passed through the boyfriend into the girl, but they survived. And you know what happened in that moment, they were universally acclaimed as heroes. They were universally acknowledged as doing what was right. There was no, there was no protest. There was no feminist saying, hey, those women had a right to die like everyone else. No, we just knew in that moment that that was right and it was good. In that same year, uh, there was the Costa Concordia uh, shipwreck uh, outside of Italy, and uh, the, the opposite happened. The, the, the captain of the ship abandoned ship before getting everyone off. The, the Italian police were yelling at him, get back on your ship because you go down with the ship. Um, uh, it was reported that men were pushing women and children out of the way to get on the life raft. And regardless of culture, uh, they were almost universally condemned as cowards because every now and again, there's clarity about our design and purpose in our culture. Uh, we, we even saw this... Uh, a few weeks ago with uh, Hurricane Katrina. There was, uh, there was uh, obviously a lot of rescue, a lot of heroes and, and men and women doing some amazing things. But there was this picture that came out. In fact, I've got it here uh, that 
that just kind of a, a picture of this guy is, is carrying this woman and her baby, and it's a picture of what's right and good. And, and you see it, it doesn't shock you. But if, if, if things were changed there, if the woman's carrying the man in that moment, we're like, what is going on? That's not right. That's not how they were designed. Uh, every now and again, we just see like, yes, that is right. So we want to lift the, the, the bar. We want to raise the bar on what it means to be uh, in the goodness and mercy and image of God, a woman of God, and, and a man of God, and uh, uh, what, what marriage is intended for. Uh, and when we do that, what we see is that there is, there is freedom when we, when we exercise and live out of our design, right? So I don't get jealous of animals very often, but when I see an eagle soaring, like you're like, that, that is awesome. That is what the eagle was designed to do, to go up high and, and, and to soar. That, that is an eagle living out its purpose, and, and that's where the eagle experiences ultimate freedom, right? You know what eagles aren't very good at? Running. They're not good swimmers. They're not good runners. Uh, the eagle can reject it. No, I reject my design, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find freedom on the ground. Well, the eagle won't last very long. If he does that. And what we've contended all through Genesis chapter 1 and 2, this isn't a repressive thing. This is a good thing. In God's good design and mercy, he's got purposes and plans for our joy and for his glory. And when we walk in that, we, we find that, that, that uh, marriages flourish. We find civilizations flourish uh, when we do that. But, but you know what's not true? It is when we reject the design and purpose for which we were created, uh, sin, chaos, destruction, darkness enters in. And, and sociologists know this, economists know this, pol politicians know this. When you take a father out of a family and out of a culture, what you find is poverty, lower education, crime, uh, any number of things that go on because they've rejected the good design and calling of God on humanity. So this is freedom to walk in this. This is joy to walk in this. So let's look at God's good design for, for His glory and for our joy. There's three things I'm going to look at here. You can pull that up. Uh, the, the goodness of man, uh, manhood, the goodness of womanhood, and the goodness of marriage. And uh, we'll, we'll look at that in Genesis chapter 2 here together this morning. We'll start a little bit of what we did last week um, in, in calling, but Genesis chapter 2 uh, verse 15. I'm not going to read the whole thing because we'll kind of walk through, but as I do get into the Scripture, as always, we'd ask you to listen carefully. This is God's Word. Starting in verse 15, we'll talk about the goodness of manhood. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, the thing I want you to notice first of all is that Eve isn't around yet. He takes the man, he takes Adam, and he puts Adam in the paradise known as Eden, and, and he ultimately gives him a physical responsibility. He says, Adam, I want you to uh, work it and keep it, to cultivate and maintain, to protect. I, I've designed you for this purpose, to have a physical responsibility over creation and to represent God in creation as you live that out. So we're to work it and keep it. And I believe we'll see later here that, that women come along and they, they help that. But the, the primary responsibility, first of all, falls on Adam's shoulder. So you, you, might, have, you might have struck it rich where your, your, your wife's dad was Daddy Warbucks. But that doesn't mean you get to be awesome at hobbies. 
It doesn't mean that you, you get to just check out. That's not what you were designed for. You were designed to work. So men should go to bed tired. Men, show me a, a, a family in chaos. Show me a man in sin. I'll show you a lazy man and, and someone who has too much time on their hand. And so we are called, regardless of our station, regardless of how much money our wife makes, to work and to work hard. That's primarily falls on the shoulders of husbands and, and fathers. And so uh, there's a physical responsibility. And then in verse 16, we see a moral, spiritual responsibility. Verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat it, you shall not surely, you shall surely die. And again, Eve's not even here yet. God has placed on Adam's shoulders a, a physical responsibility and now a moral and spiritual responsibility. And again, Eve's going to come along and she's going to help in that, those, those two things. But just, just in, in our culture, we'll see next week in Genesis chapter 3, it, it continues on. Uh, uh, the, the, the pattern of male passivity has got to be resisted. We have got to be men that, that take responsibility physically for the protection and provision of our family, but also morally and spiritually, it first and foremost falls on Adam's shoulders. So, so we've got to fight for our families spiritually. You know, uh, uh, fathers and, and men, that, that spiritual uh, growth of your family ultimately falls on you. It's not on me as a pastor. I'm here to help you. It's not on our kids' room on Sunday mornings. It ultimately and primarily falls on you to shepherd your family spiritually. You're the one that will give an account for how you do that. And so it's, it's out of God's goodness in His design that He charges men to say, you will be the, the, the forerunner for physical, spiritual provision and protection in your family. And then he says this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. That's the first time in Scripture that we've seen something is not good. Uh, sin hasn't entered in the world yet, but, but so far God has said and it is good. God has said and it is good. God has said and it is good. And now it should shock us as the readers that says, when, when God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Something's not complete yet. Something's not right. There, that there is something missing. Something still needs to be created by God to fulfill this creation mandate, to work it and to keep it, to guard it and to protect it. And so then we start to see the goodness of womanhood. He says this, I will make a helper fit for him. Now, again, in our, in our culture, the, the first thing that you might hear in that and, and on this side of, of, of Eden is, man, that doesn't sound very good. I mean, you got the CEO and you got an administrative assistant. That doesn't seem like... But that's not what the word implies at all, by the way. Uh, do a word study on this. The word helper is the Hebrew word etzer. I will make an etzer suitable for him. And there's two words going on here that are very important to understand the goodness of womanhood in this. Etzer. It can mean treasure. I will make a treasure for him. It can mean uh, power. It can mean power to accomplish a task. But what it most frequently means is military reinforcements. Marriage is war. <laughs> Not supposed to be against each other, though it does, but it, it is fighting together. 
to work it and to keep it. God says, I will make an etzer for them. But, but here's the other reason why you know for sure, for sure, this does not in any way mean that women are less than men because it's most frequently used etzer of God being the help for people. So we wouldn't say we're above God. He's our etzer. Psalm 112, verse 1, where does my etzer come from? Where does my help come from? My etzer comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And so it's a glorious thing that God would create a woman to be a helper, an etzer. But then it says, fit for him. And depending on your translation, it might say different things along those lines. But, but what the word really means is like opposite of him. Like that, does, that sounds kind of weird, like like opposite. I, I will make an etzer, a helper, like opposite to him. And think of it like this way, a, a piece of a puzzle. If all the puzzle pieces are exactly the same, they don't fit. But, uh, but for the puzzle to be completed, you have to have one that's like opposite for it to come together and to complete it. And so from the beginning, out of the goodness of his creation, God says, it's good that men are different than women like opposites. And together, they will fulfill the calling, the creation mandate, to work it and to keep it. <clears throat> and so God's going to create this longing in Adam uh, before he just gives, him, uh, gives Eve to him and her, and her to Eve. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Eve to him. I can't even think about it right now. I'm thinking about my message. Okay, verse 19. Look at this longing he's going to bring up in Adam's heart. It says, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Now that becomes very important. In the ancient Near East, when you call something or name something, you're exercising authority or dominion over it. You're, you have power. Uh, there's power in a name and there's power in the namer. And so he gives Adam this dominion because, he again, Adam reflects God's image to have dominion. And so Adam begins to name the animals. And he says, And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the every beast of the field. For, but for Adam, there was not found an etzer, a helper, fit for him, like opposite for him. So, so just picture the scene. Uh, however this is going, God says, okay, you're going to exercise authority in creation. And so he brings a, a, a bull and a cow, and, and Adam says bull and cow. And he brings a rooster and a hen, and he says rooster and a hen. He brings a, a mare and a stallion, and he, he keeps doing it. And he's, he's looking around, and he's like, okay, there, there's two. They're, they're all, everyone's coupled up. <laughs> and uh, he doesn't know. He, there's no need. There, he doesn't know that he wants something, but there's this longing growing in Adam for, for his etzer, for his like opposite. And so uh, he, he names the animals. We don't know how long that takes, but he names the animals, and then um, God performs the first surgery. Verse 21, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. So God takes his rib out of his side, and uh, the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, 
he made into a woman. Uh, it's just a, it's a beautiful picture. Uh, Matthew Henry, in his commentary, he, he put it like this. He might be reading into it a little bit, but I liked the way he described it. He says, he, uh, God makes Eve not, not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. I like that. So Eve is created. Adam is waking up in the garden from his surgery. And, and just imagine that. So, so Adam and Eve, Adam was, is used to walking with God in the garden. So, so as he wakes up and, and kind of getting the sleep out of his eyes, he, he sees God walking down, however that looks. I don't know what that looks like. But he sees God. But, but then he sees Eve. For the very first time. It's a picture of marriage. God is the father who's walking the bride down the aisle and is going to present the bride to the groom. And let me just say this about marriage. Marriage, you, you can't understand the Bible without understanding marriage. It starts with a wedding and it will end with a wedding in Revelation 19. And we'll see why this is such a huge deal to God and to understanding the Bible. But God brings Eve and Adam exalts in a song. Adam, like his maker, is an artist, and so Adam sings a song. Well, first, I, I think Adam it kind of just starts to put the pieces of the puzzle together, and he's like, whoa, man, whoa, man, whoa, man, whoa, woman, woman, it's a woman, I mean, this is what you need to hear in this passage. He is excited. He's joyous. He sees the goodness of God in creation and, and, and finding a, a helper fit for him. And he sings this song. He says, this at last. You're like, Adam, you haven't been along, around that long. It's not that long of a deal. No. But he's like, as long as I have been alive, this is what I've been longing for. This is what I've been wanting. And, and God gives it to him at last. Now, this shows something about the nature of God. It shows the humility of God. God didn't just create us to only need Him, but He created us to need each other and need the differences of each other to be in community. This was part of God's good purpose and design. And He says, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. What Adam is saying is there, as I see Eve, I see myself more. Not only do I learn about her, but I learn about myself. And so I've been married 18 years, and uh, my wife, she's not here right now. She's, she's representing us at another church this morning. Uh, but uh, she, she has shown me more of myself than I knew by myself. And God has made her a helper suitable for me, fit for me. Now, let me just say this. There, there are no perfect marriages in this room. And uh, we'll see there are, there are no perfect marriages. And all of us bring baggage into every relationship we have. And the longer you're in the relationship you have, the, the more baggage you get. And, and you never marry the right person. You know that? Because even if you marry, she's going to change and you're going to change. And you're always changing. So marriage has to be more than just fit for my personality or, or making me happy. There's a higher purpose for it. And we see this he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then it says, 
They were naked and not ashamed in verse 25. This would be a good time to, to maybe say something that's surprising. John Newton, who wrote the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, was also a great pastor. And, and in his pastoring, he often would warn young couples, warn older couples. He says, as, as great a spiritual danger it is in your life to have a bad marriage, it's more of a spiritual danger to have a good marriage. Now that sounds strange, right? Because after all, especially in the Christian world, we have entire ministries devoted so that you can have a really, really good marriage. But John Newton says the marriage is such a good thing from God that so many people can twist the goodness of it and make it the ultimate thing. So we talked about in creation, pantheists and panentheists can look at creation and they say, this is really good, we should worship this, and miss the point that they were created for something more than that. And Christians, we're in the danger of doing that too. Marriage is not meant to be your functional God, your Savior. So when we look at our spouse as our Savior to find our meaning, our purpose, our value, uh, all those things that only come from God, we begin to put on unreal expectations, unreal burdens on the shoulders of our, our, our wives and our husbands, and we, we, they, have to, they have to come through through us, because if they don't come through for us, functionally we are not going to be saved, functionally we're not going to be satisfied, and so we do a couple things. We either try to make them into the person that can be our Savior through through nagging or expectation or argument and say, why don't you change? Or we, we can't possibly see anything wrong with them because to see something wrong with them, it would mean that, that, that they're not our God. They're not worthy of our worship. And God never intended our, our marriages to be just one longingly looking into each other's eyes. Adam and Eve, you see, are created to stand side by side in love relationship on a mission to work it and to keep it, to go forward. The best marriages I know are on mission together. And I also know that some of the, the, the most mature, spiritually fierce women I know have the worst husbands because they've learned early on that their husband is not their God and they've had to pursue Jesus in the midst of a hard situation. So be cautious, be, be careful of idolatry, because that which is good, that which God designed, can, is not meant to be worshipped. Let me just say that. There are no perfect marriages. We're going to see next week that Adam and Eve quickly go downhill. We all bring baggage. There's all brokenness, but where do we look? Where's the hope for marriage today? Well, in verse 24, says this, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now this verse becomes very important throughout the scripture and into the New Testament because this is, this is foundational to what it means to be in covenant with a person. So marriage from the very beginning was to designed to be a covenant permanent relationship to, to last uh, as, as long as you live. Uh, but again, we've seen brokenness, we've seen uh, death, we've seen divorce, we've seen all these things. And so where do we look for help? Well, Jesus quotes that same passage in Matthew 21 and Mark 10, but also the Apostle Paul. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We're not going to unpack the whole thing there, but I just want to show you how Paul quotes that verse and the hope 
that that verse then points us to. Paul, starting in verse 22, kind of unpacks what covenant looks like, unpacks what the glory of womanhood and manhood, the glory of marriage. And um, let me just also say this. All of us at some point in our lives live as single people, and many of us will live as single people again, whether through uh, death or divorce or otherwise. Uh, the, the Bible is also very clear that you are not less of a person, less of an Im- image bearer, less of a, a member of the kingdom of God if you are single. You know, J- Christianity is the only major world religion started by a single person, Jesus. And, and so we wouldn't say Jesus is somehow less valuable in, in the, the spectrum of humanity. Paul, the apostle Paul, was single. Paul will say it to the Corinthian church, he says, hey, look, if you're single, praise God. God can do some amazing things through single people that he could never do through married people. Are you married? Oh, praise God for that. That, that really does some amazing things as well. But the point is, is that both represent the goodness of God and can reflect God. But then in Ephesians, Paul is speaking to families. He's speaking to husbands and wives. And then in, down in verse 31, he, you can go on your own time and, and read that this week, but verse 31, he quotes that verse, "...therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." So he's going back to Genesis 2.24, but look what Paul says about it, this. He says, "...this is a profound mystery." like, this should cause us to rack our brains. He says, but I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The whole point of marriage, the whole reason God gave Adam and Eve to each other was to put Jesus on display and to to make God's covenant love put on display. And so that's why I said, you cannot understand the Bible without understanding God's purpose in marriage. And so throughout the Old Testament, God says, I am going to enter into covenant with my people, and I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. And repeatedly, uh, the people of God turn their back, they're unfaithful, and this language of adultery and unfaithfulness comes into play. And and people like Hosea, the prophet, is, is commanded to marry someone who will cheat on him because God says, I'm going to use your life and your marriage as a visual illustration to show what it's like being in covenant relationship with my people. Continually, continually, God's people break covenant, but God pursues. God pursues. And then in Revelation 19, there's a, the final wedding. See, Jesus stayed single. One of the reasons he said single, because he was preparing his bride, the church. And even though she would continue to turn her back on him, continue to sin, he went and he paid the bride price. He, with his own blood on the cross, he paid for her and covered her in his righteousness so that on the last day, right before restoration, the bride of Christ would be presented to the groom. Jesus as perfect and spotless and blameless. Marriage is ultimately about the gospel. And so, again, none of us have perfect marriages. None of us do this well. And yet all of us can turn to Jesus and say, we need you. It, it should, where we fall short in our marriages as husbands and wives or as single people, we, we need to turn to Jesus and say, I can't do this apart from you. And Jesus is gladly answering that prayer, gladly entering into those spaces. And so the ultimate aim of marriage is 
Jesus. So, how, how do we apply this passage? I would say this. First of all, if you're single, honor Jesus with your singleness. Don't think that if you get married, then everything will be perfect. Paul says, uh, do you desire to get married? You desire a good thing. Do you desire to stay single? You desire a good thing. But it's not going to be God for you. It can't save you. And so, honor God in your singleness. Become, become the type of man or woman of God that you need to be uh, for, to enter into that marriage. Husbands, how do we apply this? Well, Take on your leadership. The, the Scripture would call it headship. And that, again, that's not a demeaning term in any way to anyone else. It just says that ultimate responsibility falls on you to work it and to keep it, to provide for and to protect. And where you've fallen short, repent, ask forgiveness, and ask Jesus to help you. Say, I don't, I don't, know, I don't even know how to, how to lead my family spiritually. Well, get the Jesus Storybook Bible and start reading that to your kids in bed at night. Start, start something. And let me just warn you, husbands, fathers, it's not going to be awesome. Like, they're going to fall asleep. They're going to they're ignore you. But it's the perseverance over the long haul that has such tremendous impact as you lead your family spiritually. Wives, you're called as a treasure, as a power source, as military reinforcements to, to make sure that this creation mandate of Working it and keeping it is fulfilled. And so uh, use everything God's given you for His glory and the good of your family. Be the etzer you're called to. And in this culture that is confused and wondering, we have the opportunity to put Jesus on display in our families and in our marriages. And so for the flourishing of our families and the flourishing of our city and for the name of Jesus, may we understand marriage, understand its goodness, and live it out. Let me pray for us to that end, and then we'll come to this communion table once again. God, we thank you for your goodness in creation. Lord, you designed us to soar, and uh, we've all chosen at times to walk on the ground. But I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see our role and where we fall short, and we all fall short. You would uh, again, just pour your mercy and grace upon us each day. Your mercies are new, and so we're thankful for that. Lord, I pray for anyone here that is single, that desires to be married. Lord, would you just uh, first and foremost be their treasure uh, and be creating them into that, the type of person that would honor you well in their marriage. For others that uh, just want to devote themselves to you as single people, I pray, Lord, that they would honor you in that as well. For husbands and fathers, Lord, where we have been passive and neglected our responsibility, I pray, Lord, that today would be encouragement to step in to love our wives and our children well. For wives, I pray, Lord, that they too would, would see what it means to represent you and, and the gospel in their marriage and to, to be people that understands as Christ submits to the church that they can submit to you in their marriage for your sake and for their good. God, Help us to be a light in this culture that is confused and wondering. Help us to, to not be a, a negative source, but to put marriage on display as your good design. Before there was ever any other human institution, you designed it for your glory and for our good. And we thank you for that, Lord. Help us to enjoy these things. In Jesus' name, amen.